Well, if you'll open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11, we're going to read there together. I am teaching the membership class uh, next Sunday afternoon. If you want to join our church, that's how you do it. Or if you'd just like to find out more about our church, you're welcome to come. It's from, I teach it from 4 to 6, and uh, if you'll sign, you can sign up through a connection card. I'll say something about it perhaps at the end as well. Well, let's look at Hosea chapter 11. We're going through this book of the Bible, and God uses some analogies to teach us about our relationship with him. He really is explaining the relationship he has with Israel and through that, the relationship God wants us to have with him. So you may remember it started with the story of Hosea being told to marry a wife of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. And God said, that's really what Israel is with me. I made them for me. And yet they chase every God, every cultural uh, trend. And then last week we saw the analogy turn to agriculture and farming and how the Bible says you reap what you sow and you have to think about the harvest that's coming. And we learned about some of God's nature there. And and this morning we're going to look in chapter 11 at the analogy that has turned now to a father and a son. And we learned something about who God is as we see him as a father and something about our relationship to him. And so we see the analogy of father and son, and we learn from it what Israel is to be like to God, what we are to be like to our Lord. And there's something about that analogy of the father. When we, a minute ago, we were singing, he's a, he's a good, uh, you're a good, good father. And when my father passed away a decade ago, that song was kind of new. It was fairly new then, I think, or somewhere thereabouts. And uh, man, God used that in my life to just minister to me. You know how sometimes God would use a song and it got into my, I found myself humming it and, and singing it. It came to my mind often through for a long period of time. And I was reminded God is a good, good father. And whether you had a good father or not, whether you had a father who taught you, I'm thankful I had a father who taught me about God and brought me to church, you know, cared about the local church. And, but if you didn't have a father in your life or you didn't have a father who cared about spiritual matters, I want you to see a little of who God is, the great, the perfect father, the perfect father, and what it means for us. Um, And let's pick up the story now. In Hosea chapter 11, I'm going to read the beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be his king, because they refuse to repent. A sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. Judah still wonders with God and is faithful to the holy ones. 
Well, I'm going to talk about the love of a father, and I have eight principles I want you to note with me. Hope you have a lot of ink in your pen. Let's get ready. Can you do this? Hope you're going to have carpal tunnel syndrome or something, because you're going to write these eight principles down as we learn a little bit more of who God is and our relationship to Him, the relationship God wants for us. So eight things I want you to note. Number one, the father loves the son. Now, don't miss this one. I mean, don't miss this one. The father loves the son. The Bible says in verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I loved him. And the Bible is reminding us of this great truth that God loves the son. The father loves the son. The analogy is a beautiful one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Notice the Bible says God loves you first. Israel had done nothing for God at this point. When they were a child, I loved him. It isn't that God said, I loved you because of because you did all of these things, I loved you, and God loves you first. Before you could ever love God, God loved you. Before you ever thought to love God, before you ever did anything for him. We have, uh, we can have four children and now 13 grandchildren, and we love them. But I will tell you, we loved them before they ever did anything for us. When they were born, they just came out kind of wrinkled and pink and... Um, crying, and uh, they didn't know how to do anything except make messes, cry and make messes. That's all they did. They didn't do do anything for us. They didn't, like, provide for us in some ways. They didn't mow the lawn for me or do yard work. Come to think of it, they still don't do that. (laughs) But nonetheless, I mean, it wasn't that I said I love them because they they do these things for me, so I love them. That wasn't it. Man, I love them. They ain't done anything for me, and I love them, and I'm an imperfect father. But God, the perfect Father, loved us first. Not just, he, he loves you, not just because of what you do for Him, by the way, what you can provide for Him, or when you act right and do the things that you ought to do. God loved you first, and can I note as well, God loves you best. He loves you more than any father's ever loved a child. I, I love my children, but I can't, I'm an imperfect father. My heavenly Father loved me in a way. He loves me in a way that I have not fully understood, and He he loves me best. I, if you ever wonder, oh, does God really care about me? And do I matter to him? The cross is the great evidence of God's love. It's the great evidence. And Christ did not go to the cross because you had done so well and you were so perfect that he decided to go to the cross for you. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place on the cross. He demonstrated his love for us on that cross. It's the evidence of his love. If you don't know Christ as Savior, I just want to urge you to give your life to Christ, to receive him as Savior, and find that love. The Bible says when you trust Christ as Savior, God adopts you into his family, and no father has ever loved his son as, as the Lord loves his children. The father loves the son. The second principle I want you to note is the father calls to the son. He calls to the son. Verse 1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, burning offerings to idols. Well, God spoke to Israel, though they didn't always listen. And God speaks to us. If you want to know what, you know, if you want to know what the world says, you can hear that easily. You hear that all the time. And the world is saying contradictory things all the time. But God has spoken to us. And in his word, we can, we can know what God says. We can know what God says. We can know what God thinks. We can know what God wants. 
We can know who God is. We can know what God wants us to do or not to do. It's not, you know, many people base their decisions on what they feel or what they think. And, man, feelings can be pretty fickle. Have you noticed that? And your opinion can change over time. Or they base it on what the culture says, what the world says. And the world is always changing. What's right is wrong, and what is wrong is right. And we change that all the time. And it's a, we have never lived in a culture that's more confused and a generation that's more confused about right and wrong, or if there is even such a thing. So how do we know, how do we know what's true? And the Bible says God tells us the truth. He speaks to us. He gives us his word. God wants you to know the truth because the truth sets you free. So he tells you the truth. He doesn't just tell you what's popular, and he doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. Have you noticed that? But he just tells you the truth because the truth sets you free. And so we want to know what the Bible says. So read the Bible for yourself. Did you know how easy it is to read the New Testament, relatively speaking? Two chapters a day, five days a week, half a year you've read the whole New Testament. That's how doable it is. And I want to encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. Read through that New Testament many times. Read through the whole Bible for yourself. Get involved in a Bible study like our life groups. Opportunities to learn more about what the Bible says, what God wants, to learn what God tells us to do, to learn what truth is, to see how the Bible is, how it, how it uh, speaks about how the world is wrong and, and the dangers of the world, how, how God's got a better way for us. I am so thankful God speaks to us. We sing about the Bible. I noticed some of the songs we were singing are direct quotes from God's Word, and we study the Bible in our life groups, our small groups. I mean, we, we want you to know what the Bible says because God speaks to us. God in heaven wants us to know what he says. And not only does he speak to us, but he calls us out of bondage. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. This quote, by the way, that verse is found in the New Testament speaking of Jesus who would go um, to Egypt as a baby and come back out of Egypt. And it's a, it really, it's a good metaphor for us here of how God takes us out of bondage in Egypt. Remember, Egypt was the place where Israel found themselves living as slaves, and God brought them out of bondage and brought them to the promised land. And God, of course, calls us to leave the bondage of sin. Sin always leads to bondage. Last week we talked about how the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death, how sin always leads to bondage. It's never to freedom. It markets itself as being great and wonderful, but it's always leading to bondage. And the Lord is saying, you can come out of Egypt and to the freedom that I have for you. And that's, the, that's found in salvation. And so we're praying you will come to know Christ as Savior, that you will repent of your sins. We acknowledge that we've sinned against God. Place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you. And then receive him as Savior. Ask him to save you. And even this very day, you can give your life to Christ and be saved. And the Lord will do that for you. And if you trust him as Savior, he will invite you into his family. He'll adopt you into his family. But notice verse 2 reminds us often we fail to listen. Verse 2 says, uh, Israel keeps sacrificing to the Baals. They keep burning offerings to idols. Man, even those of us who name, who call God our Father, sometimes stop listening to him. And we listen to the world and try to find out what's popular or follow the easy way or follow our feelings and we just stop listening to God. And so God is calling to you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to lead you out of bondage into something better. 
That's the third thing I want you to note. The father teaches the son. Every father, every parent knows part of their responsibility is teaching. Verse 3 says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand. I love the little toddler stage. Man, I love that toddler stage of really neat time in life. And to see that little child just starting to walk. Just this morning, uh, before the earlier service, I was, I was out in the atrium and a little toddler came. She's just just toddling. She hasn't walked very long. And um, she walked right over to me and held her arms up. And, you know, I picked her up. And re- obviously a really smart child, you know. And I said, oh such a beautiful stage in life when they learn to walk. Mom and dad, you know, help them stand a little bit. They start standing and then they take their little hand and maybe help them take those little steps. And eventually then that child learns to walk on their own. It's a, what a neat time. Well, God in heaven is saying to us, I want to teach you to walk. That's what I did with Israel. I helped you take those tottering steps as you went from being a little spiritual baby into some spiritual maturity to put down some deeper spiritual roots to learn some of the truths God loves to teach us. Often, they never knew I healed him, the Lord says in verse 3. They didn't pay attention. They didn't realize what I'd done for them. Maybe we've taken for granted that God's always open to teaching us, always wanting to teach us. I was at a soccer game recently, and I was watching all the fathers. You know, all the parents come, and grandparents all come, and they're all... In this case, there's like little boys playing, and all the fathers are there. Some of the fathers were... Uh, minding their manners better than others, but some of the fathers just, you know, coaching their kids so much, and they want their kids to get better. Some of them are better coaches than others. You know, some of the dads didn't, they don't know what an indirect kick is, and so they weren't quite accurate with their kids on a couple things, and I just thought, I love, I love the passion they have to teach their children. They want their children to play for the new St. Louis professional team probably. It's not a great love that they're teaching them. As they get a little older, maybe they'll have to let the coaches take over a little bit more. Maybe some of you uh, moms and dads should, you know, be a little calm on the sideline, talk to your kids later. But what a privilege it is to teach. So let me ask you a question. Whose responsibility, parents, whose responsibility, parents, is it to teach your kids about the things of God? Whose is it? Well, you could say the church. And we want to help you. Let me get, don't get me wrong. But you, do you know what's your, do you know what's your job? I don't, I don't mean that we won't help. We want to help. We love to help. We'll do everything we can to help. But don't miss that opportunity to teach your children. There's a sense in which you're teaching your children all the time, either for good or for bad. You're teaching them that God made the church for a reason or that it really doesn't have much value at all. Or that following the Lord is really, really deeply matters or that it's just a little small thing on the course of life. And I want you to teach your children the truths of the Lord. God is always, the Father's always teaching us. He's teaching us all the time in every situation through the good and the bad and the ugly of life. Number four, the Father provides for the Son. One of the things God does, of course, is to provide for us. The Bible says in verse 4, I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Notice the the Bible tells us God leads. It's one of the jobs God does. It's a part of who God is. He leads us. The basic premise of discipleship taught by Jesus could be summarized in two words. Follow me, Jesus said. Follow me. He's saying, follow my direction. Follow my path. Follow my teaching. And God leads us. It's his provision for us. We don't know the way to go. 
We, we can easily be lost or led astray. God leads us. And then notice God gives. Verse four, in verse 4, the Bible says, God bent down to give them food. God provided for Israel. And God is a giving God. We talked about giving briefly uh, through the app earlier. And why give? Well, we give because God tells us to. That's the reason enough. And we give because we care about the mission that God calls us to. That's enough. But God gives us another reason. Giving does something to us. To us. God is a giving God. God provides for others. Don't let your Christian life be primarily about what you get. Don't let that be the goal of your Christian life. What's in it for me? You will find yourself saying things like, well, I want or I think or I... And pretty soon you begin to think that the Christian life is just about what's in it for me, what's in it for me. And you'll be a taker. And listen, the world's filled with takers. I mean, don't think that's abnormal. It's the most common thing in the world. The world is filled with takers. But God is saying, give. Use your, that's not just your finances. You be, give your talents. Give your spiritual gifts. Think of others and not just yourself. That's what God does. God leads us and God gives to us because God is a God who provides. And God has put people in your life and God has put you in the lives of people so that you will bless them, so that you will provide for others. Certainly that's the role of the family. We think of our family and not just ourselves, but that's the role of the family of God. That's the role of the Christian life. God wants us to learn that lesson. Principle number five, the father disciplines the son. You knew I was going to get there eventually, didn't you? That's inevitable, wasn't it? God, the father disciplines the son. And he talks here in verses five, six, and seven about his discipline some. He says, Israel will not return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will be his king. Assyria, by the way, would capture Israel and they would face punishment. Well, why? Because, verse 5 says, because they refused to repent. They were disciplined. There was a reason why they faced this problem. Sometimes problems happen. The problems of Egypt happened because there was a bad king, a bad pharaoh who rose up who knew not Israel and they, who knew not Joseph, and he just enslaved Israel. Sometimes bad things happen just because we live in a fallen world is no fault of our own. Other people are doing wrong. But sometimes bad things happen because of us. Assyria happened because Israel chose to disobey God. And so the Bible says because they refused to repent, that's why Assyria overthrew them. He said um, a sword, verse 6 says, a sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. There's that same because word, because of their schemes. That is Discipline comes because of con there's consequences to our actions. We reap what we sow. And verse 7. Boy, verse 7, the first part of verse 7, that first sentence, is the, in many ways, that's the Western church in large measure. My people are bent on turning from me. That's a terrible verse, but it is so descriptive. My people. He's not talking about the Assyrians and the Egyptians. He's saying my people are bent on turning from me. Man, that's too... Too much like the modern church where people are bent on, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to turn from God, from my Father. And though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all, verse 7 says. So let's note a couple of things about discipline, the Father disciplining the Son. Note that it's out of love. God does it because he loves. And it's in our best interest. It's out of love. It's in our best interest. 
God's discipline is always that way, like a father ought to be for his own child. So I was with my brothers. Um, all my brothers were up, and my mom, we went to see all these places we used to live in Illinois when we were young, and we went by one of the old church buildings, a small church building where we were years ago, and we were, you know, sometimes when you see those buildings, you're reminded of events, and one of my brothers reminded us of this event that happened. There was a young uh, family in our church, and um, the, the woman's name was Mary Lou. I don't remember her last name, but her, her, she was Mary Lou, and she would always sit in the front, and she had two boys, and they were both kind of wild, like lots of boys are sort of wild. That's not an uncommon thing. Kind of wild boys, you know, rambunctious, I guess, is the word they used to use. And they would misbehave, and she would take those boys out and, you know, click, 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 with, had the little hard floor, you know, you'd hear her walk out, and then they'd get in trouble. And, you know, I'm from the, I'm old enough, I'm from the old days when, you know, people used to get whoopings and stuff. And um, so, one day, my brother reminded this story. So one day we're is a worship service, and the kid was like, I don't know, misbehaving some way as kids as boys do, and she started taking him off, you know, to the back. And he said, just as loudly as he could in a small church building, everyone could hear it. He said, "Don't beat me, mom! Don't beat me!" He said, and she kept going. And he said, "She's gonna beat me! She's gonna beat me!" And she took him off, and I don't know for sure what happened, but I think she probably beat him. I don't know. I mean, and I think that kid probably didn't think, you know what? Mom's doing this out of love, and mom's probably doing this in my best interest. And maybe when God disciplines, you think, you don't think, you know what? God's doing this out of his love, and he's doing this in my best interest. But I tell you, because God loves you. It's one of the evidences of his love. Because a parent understands if you love your kids, God disciplines out of his love and he disciplines in our best interest. Number, uh, number six, the father has compassion for the son. The father has compassion for the son. The Bible says um, in verse eight, how can I give you up Ephraim and how can I surrender you Israel? He's saying, and I hate, I hate for you to go through this discipline. And then he says, how can I make you like Adma and how can I treat you like Zeboim? These are two towns that were in the plains of Sodom. And, when, and Sodom and Gomorrah, you may know that story in the Old Testament, were destroyed because of their wickedness. And either then or sometimes in that same general time, Adma and Zeboim were destroyed as well. That is, they faced the consequences of their actions. Judgment came. God is a holy God, and a holy God deals with sin. He brings judgment. But the Lord says, I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. He's saying, man, I, I, even though you deserve this punishment, you deserve this judgment, I have compassion for you still. And he said, I'm, I'll not vent the full fury of my anger, verse 9. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I'm, not, for I'm God, not man, the Holy One among you, and I'll not come in rage. The Lord is saying, I have compassion, even though you don't deserve it. There are two words I want you to write down that are very important to understand in terms of God's compassion. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Grace is where God gives us the love we don't deserve. God loves us, though we don't deserve it. Mercy is where God withholds from us the judgment that we do deserve. 
And God, in his compassion, shows us grace. He loves us, though we don't deserve it. Don't think, don't think God loves you because you've been so perfect and you've never messed up. He knows full well the truth. But he has compassion. And he shows mercy, though we deserve. Can I just be direct and blunt? Apart from God's grace, thank, I'm so thankful for God's grace, but we deserve to be separated from God. We deserve hell because God is holy, and holy God, a just God, justly brings the consequences of sin to us, but he shows mercy to us. He is willing to forgive. The cross itself is the evidence of God's compassion because Jesus took my sins upon himself, the one who had never sinned, who lived the perfect life, the only one who lived the perfect life, took my sins upon the cross and died in my place for me. And that is evidence of God's love. He took the judgment that was rightly mine. Don't ever, like, don't ignore the compassion of the Lord. So while we're on our little travails with my brothers traveling and such, we're reminded of, a, I was reminded of another story. I don't know that my other brothers um, would have even remembered this story, but we went to vacation Bible school. We were active in church. I'm glad we were. And we went to vacation Bible school every year. You'll hear us talk about vacation Bible school, Bible school often here. It's a program to teach little boys and girls. We sometimes call it VBS, short for Vacation Bible School. And we have a big Bible school here. I love it. It's a great opportunity to teach boys and girls about the things of God, to reach them and teach their families. I'll bet there are, so, I'll bet there are many of you here who came to Christ in Vacation Bible School yourself. It's a great, man, I love it. So I was in Vacation Bible School long years ago, and I had a teacher, a woman whose name I've long since forgotten, who was teaching me, and I don't remember any really details about that, about her teaching, except for one. I remember she was talking about her sons. She had grown sons. We were in a little small town, kind of knew everybody, but I didn't know her sons. They were, I guess they probably were grown. I didn't, I didn't know them or their names, and they probably moved away somewhere. But I remember my teacher, this grown woman, talking about her sons and that they were away from the Lord. I don't know the details. I just know they were away from the Lord. Maybe we were talking, I don't know, maybe we were studying the prodigal son or something, and she would just, she brought that up. And then as she talked about that and her desire for them to get right with God, she, uh, her voice cracked and she started to cry. Now, I'm not the most compassionate guy in the world, and I certainly wasn't as a boy, but I, I'm still, the, when I see an adult cry, I'm a sympathetic crier. Are you a sympathetic crier sometimes? I'm a sympathetic crier, and it really, when an adult cries, and even as a, as a boy who was not probably overly um, sympathetic and compassionate, man, when I saw that mother, like, when her voice cracked, because we, you know, sometimes you goof around in Bible school. I didn't always pay attention like I should. But man, I mean, she had my attention. And I, like, I learned something as a boy that day about the compassion of God who cared about a prodigal coming home. I'll just tell you, if I were in God's place, I'm not sure if you ran from God? I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 I think my prodigal father story would be I'd just wash my hands of it and say, all right, that's the way you want to be. I'll just go on to the next thing in life. And, but that father 
loved that child who had done wrong and watched for him every day and ran to him when he came back and celebrated his return. And God in heaven, I do not know why, but I know that he loves you. And I, I cannot understand why, but I know that he longs for prodigals to come home. And if you've run from God, God invites you back. God invites you to repentance and forgiveness and the restoration that follows. I don't understand why God loves us like he does. We are broken. We don't have any. We don't, it's not that we are offering God something great. We come to God broken and fallen. All we know, how to, all we know is how to break and mess up and, and, and cry ourselves, and yet God loves us. And if you've been adopted into his family, God loves you, and he is waiting for you to come back. If you're here and never trusted Christ as Savior, man, he's, he is able to save. God has compassion grace and mercy. Number seven, the father plans for the son. He plans for the son. I don't know if you have children one day. Maybe you'll have dreams for your child that they'll be an artist or a, uh, maybe they'll be an athlete or maybe they'll be a president or may, maybe your dreams are big and you want to be dictator of the world or something. I don't, I don't know what your dreams will be, but the father has plans for the son. He talks about this here. He talks about how um, when he roars, his children will come back from the west, he says in verse 10. In verse 11, he says, They'll be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. I love that. God has plans for you. My wife's favorite uh, Bible verse is Jeremiah 29, 11, at least among her favorites. And it says this, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. God has plans for you. God has a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your, sal for your salvation and for your life as a believer. God has plans for you to use your gifts and talents and abilities for him. God has planned for you. God wants what's, what's best for you. And so he called you out of Egypt, that place where you face problems even though it's not of your own fault, or from Assyria, that place that is your fault. You're having problems because of your own choices. God calls you to something better. He calls you to a promised land, to, to the home that he has for you. And then number eight, God knows the son. God knows the son. The Bible says in verse eight, Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit and Judah still wonders with God and is faithful to the holy ones. Now, this is a really complicated uh, Hebrew text. Verse 12 is really complicated. I think what it's saying is this. Uh, in verse 12, it's saying Judah still wonders with God I think it's talking about wandering away from the Lord and is faithful to the holy ones. I think, about, I think it's talking about chasing other gods, etc. But I know there's no lack of clarity in the beginning of verse 12. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Here's what the Lord is saying. Man, I have loved them and I have cared about them and yet they have, I, I know them and they have a propensity to go their own way. I give them grace and mercy and they have a tendency to just to chase after the world. I have something so much better for them. And I, make, I made them for me. I made them for something great. And yet they 
tend to turn their backs on me. I made them to be my spouse, and yet they run to promiscuity. I have a better harvest for them, but they reap what they sow. I made them to be my child, and yet they forget that I'm their father. God knows you. He knows everything. He knows you. And he knows the weakness. He knows the difficulties. He knows the struggles. He knows the problems. He knows right where you are. Some of you, if you were honest with God, would admit that you're a prodigal, that you've run from God. Maybe things look good on the outside, but on the inside, you know that your heart is far from the Lord. Man, God knows it well. But the Father still loves. He still loves. I want to invite you to come back to him today. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? If you're lost today, would you give your life to Christ? You know, I can't be saved for you, but I'm going to just plead with you, implore you, right where you are today, would you repent of your sin? Would you place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you? Would you receive him as Savior? Ask him to save you, and he will, and he'll adopt you into his family. Christian, maybe when I talked about the prodigal child, that resonated with your heart because you know the, the reality that you're you're not where the Father wants you to be, but he's waiting for you to come home. Would you say today, God, I, I want to get right with you. I want to go your way, not the world's way. Would you join me, church, would you join me today in saying, just recognizing how much God loves and just deep in your heart saying, God, thank you for being a father who loves me. Thank you for being a father who loves me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power and truth that teaches us. And Lord, would you use this in our lives to make us more of what you want us to be. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.